Good morning, True North. My name is Sam, and we'll be reading the scriptures for today. Uh, please follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen behind me. Uh, today's passage comes from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 20, and John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they had said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they co continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman, standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke, saying, uh, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour has not come. The Jews answered, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews, answered to, or the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see, me, see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Are you not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. Uh, happy Mother's Day to those that are celebrating, are able to celebrate, and to those where uh, today might be a painful time. Um, hopefully, the, I, I pray that the comfort of the Holy Spirit will be with you at this time. Um, well, for uh, those that don't know, uh, my name is Jay. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we are uh, right in the beginning of our sermon series through the 
um, I am statements of Jesus Christ. So last week we talked about Jesus as he claims that he is the bread of life and, and just the significance of what that means, that he is the sustainer of life. Uh, he is the one that provides uh, a spiritual food that once we've eaten it, we will never hunger again. And um, for us today, now we're going to go over the statement of Jesus as he claims that he is the light of the world. And for many of us, and when we think about the terminology light, we kind of already have a natural inclination of what that is referring to. Uh, and what the meaning of light or the terminology of light is, is kind of interesting because all across different cultures, uh, the meaning is pretty much the same. Where um, whether it's different religions or different philosophies, we understand light as something that uh, illuminates truth in us or reveals truth or is able to show truth in uh, difficult scenarios. And we always see light in opposition with darkness. And darkness is oftentimes, uh, you know, kind of associated with things of chaos, things that are evil, things that are fearful, things that are hard to understand. And you know, when Jesus says that I am the light of the world, it signifies something where he is the one who is revealing truth, one who is in opposition to darkness. Light also signifies um, life in the sense that light is the source of, of life. I Googled what would happen to the earth if there was no light. And uh, as you could imagine, basically we would all die. You know, uh, without light, there would be no photosynthesis, there would be no plants, and no plants mean no animals. Uh, they would all starve. I think the only uh, animals that might be able to survive are like these, you know, the single cell amoebas and stuff, you know, but like we can't eat that. Like, we can't sustain ourselves with that. So we would just basically die. So when Jesus is claiming that he is the light of the world, he's not only claiming that he is the one who reveals truth, who is in opposition to darkness, who brings order into chaos, but he is also saying that he is the very source of light into this entire world. And this claim, I am the light of the world, is something that should be astonishing to us or, or should at least perk up our ears. And that's exactly what happened with the people of the religious leaders of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees of Jesus' time. So today, we are going to look at John chapter 8, and we're going to look at the claim that Jesus makes that he is the light of the world. And we'll discuss two points from this claim, that as the light of the world, that Jesus uh, reveals truth and reveals the false motives that we may have. And second, that Jesus, as a light of the world, he reveals to the entire world that he himself is the very source of eternal life in this world. Now, as we begin this passage and as we begin this sermon, uh, one of the very first things that we've read was John chapter 8, and it's a story about a woman caught in adultery. And perhaps if you've gone to church or if you've grown up in church, you've heard this story before. And maybe even if you haven't gone to church, there's a very famous quote from this story uh, that many people like to quote. And I used to quote this all the time when people try to judge me. Say, hey, he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? And, and we mistakenly understand and inter interpret this passage that unless you are perfect or unless you are without sin, that you have no right to judge somebody else. You know, and that's why Tupac has that tattoo, only God can judge me. Um, I don't know if you guys know that. But, um, you know, and, and the reason why this is a misinterpretation is because, number one, throughout Scripture, uh, we are told uh, and commanded to hold each other accountable, to be able to uh, call each other out on our sins. And not only that, the rest of chapter 8, uh, Jesus is talking about judging, how he has the authority to judge, how he and the Father uh, have the authority to judge these Pharisees based on their sinfulness. And, and so in chapter 8, it's interesting that John places this story right before the claim where he says that I am the light of the world. And we'll kind of break that down a little bit. Okay, so John begins this section in chapter 8 with a famous story um, about a woman that is caught in adultery. 
right? And, and what we see is that basically these religious leaders, they want to trap Jesus. So in chapter 6, Jesus is claiming that he is the bread of life. In chapter 7, he talks about if anyone drinks of this living water, they will never thirst again. And then now in chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And at the end of chapter 7, the, the, the uh, Pharisees, the religious leaders, they wanted to stone Jesus. They wanted to arrest him, but he got away. So in chapter 8, as Jesus comes down and is again teaching in the temple, what they have is devised a plan to be able to trap Jesus, to get him to say something, to get him to do something, or get him to uh, uh, you know, maybe not do or say the right thing in order for them to arrest him with cause. So it says that while he was teaching, they brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. So they bring this woman caught in the act of adultery, and then they say, hey, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? What do you say? So now, to understand the context of what's going on, when it says that the woman was caught in the act of adultery, it, this is not painting a picture of someone who has been caught in the you know, act of adultery like a couple days ago, and they're like, oh, no, you know, you, hey, you got caught in adultery, and then they bring her to Jesus, and they're like, hey, what should we do with her? It, it literally means that at that very day, perhaps just a few minutes or a few hours before they brought her to Jesus, that she was caught in the very act of adultery. And in order for to, uh, someone to be accused or, or prosecuted in Jewish law for the act of adultery, there needed to be con confirmation of at least two to three witnesses. So if you understand what I'm getting at, basically what was happening is that there were two or three witnesses who verified that they with their own very eyes saw this woman committing a sexual act of adultery at that very moment. So now I don't know about you guys, but... Um, when you want to commit, like, an intimate act, you're going to do it where not many people are watching. Probably no one's watching, right? You're probably going to have the lights turned off, too, right? So the fact that there were actually two to, like, how is it possible that there were two to three witnesses? They're either lying or they were placed there on purpose, right? Uh, they were either lying or they were placed there on purpose with the sole intent that the Pharisees and the religious leaders wanted to use this young woman as a tool and an instrument to push forward their agenda, because their ultimate goal was not about this woman. She was just a pawn. Their ultimate goal was that they would be able to trap Jesus to say or do something incorrectly so that they would have the right to arrest him and possibly put him to death. So there's two or three witnesses. They bring this woman, and it says that she, they, the laws in Moses commanded them to stone her. Now, um, the interesting thing about the laws of Moses in the Old Testament is this. It prescribes that if a married woman is caught in the act of adultery, again, she had to be caught in the very act of it with two to three witnesses, that she, would be, she and the male would be put to death by strangulation. The very fact that um, the Pharisees ask or say women should be stoned for this act means that this is uh, not a married woman but a betrothed woman. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23. It says, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. So the difference between a married woman and a betrothed woman is this, that a betrothed woman is most likely someone much younger. Uh, you know, a betrothed woman, uh, back in those times, uh, there were arranged marriages. Most likely a, a young woman was already arranged to be married to somebody else. So even though that they were not officially married yet, she was betrothed, meaning that she was already spoken for. Um, 
not completely sure, but my speculation is that this young woman that was brought to Jesus was probably in a very young age, maybe 14 to 18 years old. Again, that speaks to the fact that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were willing to go to great lengths and use probably a very young, you know, young, young girl to push forward their agenda to arrest Jesus. And then it says that Jesus kneels to the ground, writes something on the dirt with his fingers, and then he gives this famous quote, let he who is without sin cast the first stone at her. Then he goes down again, writes down on the dirt. And then what it says is that, and once more he bent down, wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. So the question is, what was Jesus writing on the ground? You know, um, there have been sermons or people who have said that uh, what he must have been writing is like the sins of every single religious leader there. Like he was just like airing out their dirty laundry. And then he's like, ha-ha, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Um, might, might be true, but I don't think that's exactly what happened. Because these Pharisees, it didn't matter if they were with sin. Because again, this idea of only being able to judge somebody if you are perfect is a very uh, Western belief. They were people who were going to uphold the law you know, as, as it is written. So their sin didn't matter because they had not been caught in that act at that moment. That was just hearsay if Jesus had written down the laws or written down their sins. What is most likely is that what Jesus was writing was the actual law of God written by Moses in Deuteronomy. So let me, let me finish reading to you what the law prescribed in Deuteronomy. It says, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. When you read that law, what is the first thing that stands out to you? Where is the man? They only brought the young woman who was caught in adultery, but not the man. And I believe the reason why, it then, and it says this, uh, but when they heard it, so Jesus wrote it down, and then someone read it out loud. And it says, when they heard it, it says they left one by one, starting with the older ones. Why? Because the older ones are probably a little bit wiser. They know the law a little bit better. And they're like, aha, Jesus, he used the Uno reverse card on us. He got us. And so they walk away one by one. And, and, and here's the thing, guys. This right here, what Jesus did was the first Facebook post argument. He wrote it on the ground. They read it out loud. And they're like, dude, you got us. Change their minds. And here's the thing, guys. These religious leaders and Pharisees, they're not dumb. They were experts in the law, which tells me this that they didn't plan this entire setup and then forgot to bring the man, it tells me that culturally and in their religion and in their practice that they always probably only brought the women to trial. That the man was never ever held accountable in the same way that a woman was. So if this is the case, if, if this was the, uh, the culture in which they lived in where these Pharisees were so easily able to bring a young woman, probably a young teenager, and say, hey, we're supposed to stone her, and didn't bring the man, that it's probably been going on for centuries. 
It's been ingrained in their belief. It's been ingrained in their practice. And what Jesus was able to do was that by a simple writing on the ground of pointing people back to the, the, you know, the law in Deuteronomy, which they, are, you know, they had access to. It's not like they didn't know it, but Jesus was able to do this, and immediately their minds and hearts were illuminated to the fact that they were following falsehood, not truth. And so they leave one by one. Now, the reason why I think this is so interesting is this. Um, there's two psychologists uh, named Kahneman and Tversky, uh, two psychi- uh, psychologists who suggest that the brain has two systems to process information. One is um, a slow and lazy one, which is very deliberate, logical, and, and very conscious. And the other one is a fast one that makes automatic, intuitive, subconscious decisions. And the lazy one doesn't want to work. So he's always letting the fast one do all everything. And the majority of the decisions that we make and the majority of the conclusions that we come to as we process information is done through the fast, quick one. So a lot of times, we already have an idea of what we think we believe is true or not. And that's where confirmation bias comes, where we automatically or uh, already assume to know what the right position is. Therefore, no matter what evidence is given, you're always going to weigh the evidence that suggests your side is right more heavily than the other. That's why arguing on social media and Facebook is the stupidest thing ever, because you'll never change anyone's mind. You know, and, and I'm guilty, I've, I've wrote like dissertations on comments with, you know, blah, 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 and here's a link to this sort, you know, and they're like, you're not gonna change anyone's mind, right? Now, let me, let me post, this literally happened this morning. Um, we have baptism this Sunday, so I had to bring this bowl for the water. Uh, I forgot it. So at 10 a.m., I called my wife. I, no, at 9.30 a.m., I called my wife. I guess time doesn't really matter, but I'm going to try to position, you know, show my position as correct more. Um, at 9.30, I called my wife. I said, hey, hey, Christina, I, I forgot the bull. Can you bring the bull? She's like, why do you need the bull? I said, it's baptism. We, gotta, we need a bull. She's like, okay. And then uh, she calls me at um, you know, 10.55. She's like, I'm going to be late because of you because you forgot the bull. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I forgot the bull, so I had to go back, and now I'm going to be late to church. <laughs> and she's like, it's your fault. I was like, no, 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 it's your fault. She's like, no, but you forgot the bull. And I was like, but you also forgot the bull. Whose fault is it? <laughs> Whose fault is it? I think it's her fault, right? Because I told her at 9.30, bring the bull, because I forgot, right? And she's like, no, no, no it's your fault, because if you didn't forget, then I wouldn't have forgot. Whose fault is it, right? My fast brain tells me it's her fault. My logical brain tells me it's her fault. But it's also, <laughs> for you guys, if you guys really think about it, whose fault is it, Right? It's hard to decide. It's hard to really come to a conclusion. And in that same way, and the reason why I bring that up is because as Jesus writes down the laws in Deuteronomy, these religious leaders who have been trained, who have always been in this method and mode of understanding the law that the only person that is held accountable to adultery is the woman, are now completely illuminated to uh, to their error. See, the only person that can change someone's mind with truth, we can't. Confirmation bias says that no matter what evidence is brought, most likely you're not going to have your mind changed. But Jesus, the light of the world, is able to do that with a simple writing of the law on the ground to show the Pharisees and the religious leaders the errors of their ways. I think the reason why this is so important is this. We live in a society, we live in a culture 
where we all assume that our side is the correct side, that our belief is the correct belief. And especially if you identify as a believer and a Christian, you believe that everything that you believe to be true and more gospel-oriented is going to be more gospel-oriented. But on the other side, there's also Christians who may not agree with your point of view, and they will also believe that their point is more gospel-centered than yours. And um, full disclosure, I, I was preparing this sermon um, most of it last week, and then uh, this week news came out about um, you know the Roe versus Wade being overturned, and I was like, oh man, like I can't not you know talk about that because here's a story of conservative religious men using women to push forward their agenda, and then here's Roe versus Wade, right? And uh, you might, depending on which side you take, you might be reading this story and be thinking, aha, see, just like how the religious leaders are using and oppressing women to push forward their agenda, here is Jesus speaking against that very act. And you might think, see, Jesus is on my side. You might be on the other side and be like, see, just as people are oppressing the voiceless, the unborn, here is Jesus speaking for a voiceless woman, a woman who has even given the time to speak and plead her case, and here he stands up for her. And literally... No matter which side you are, you're going to think you're right. Now, this is a quote from The Atlantic about, um, about abortion, and it says this. This is not an argument anyone is going to win. The loudest advocates on both sides are terrible representatives for their cause. When women are urged to shout, abor your, uh, shout your abortion, and when abortion becomes a subject of stand-up comedy routines, the attitude, uh, the attitude toward abortion seems ghoulish. Who could possibly be proud that they see no humanity at all in the images that science has made so painfully clear? When anti-abortion advocates speak in the most graphic terms about women sucking babies out of the womb, they show themselves without mercy. They are considering the extremely human, complex, and often heartbreaking reasons behind women's private decisions. Or they are not considering the extremely human, complex, and often heartbreaking reasons behind women's private decisions. The truth is that the best argument on each side is a damn good one. And until you acknowledge that fact, you aren't speaking or even thinking honestly about the issue. You certainly aren't going to convince anybody. Only the truth has the power to move. And the reason why I think this is so uh, pertinent to this conversation is this. As Jesus is saying that he is the light of the world, as he is combating a system and a situation where these Pharisees are trying to push him in a corner and put him in a place where he's going to either be arrested or put to trial, and yet he is able to reverse that and illuminate their hearts with the truth that can only come from God's word, it shows us that, number one, when it comes to situations and circumstances or topics that are so divisive such as this, it's never black and white. It never is. And it's not something where you have to stand in the middle and be like, I'm going to just split down the middle and just kind of, you know, you know put my, put my uh, feet on both sides of the fence. It's not that at all. Jesus, he, he speaks truth to both sides here. Because he's not only on the side of the woman, he's not only against the Pharisee, but he says this. He says, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And you're like, oh, man, see, Jesus is totally for this girl. It doesn't end there. He says, go and from now on sin no more. Because he acknowledges what she did was sinful, that she was caught in adultery. 
Was she set up? Possibly. But she was also culpable for that. But at the same time, he doesn't condemn her because of the fact that he understands the situation. See, for G- you might look at the situation and be like, Jesus, pick a side. But when you're t- telling Jesus to pick a side that has been created by human men, like, that might, there might be a third choice. And this is the illum- very illumination, the light of the world, and the power that God has to be able to reveal to us that everything that we think is true, everything that we believe in, in, our, conf- you know, in our confirmation bias to be right and correct, that it might not be one or the other, but that there might be a completely different thing for us to understand and believe in. And here Jesus turns the system of the Jewish religious leaders upside down by illuminating to them the actual truth of God's word. And this is why he is the light of the world. Next, Jesus is the light of the world because he is the very source of life. The very source of life. Now, you can imagine how extremely pissed the Pharisees and religious leaders are. They just got Gigi pwned, right? Jesus just came and just like, bah, 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 you know, like totally countered them, knocked them out. They were setting him up with an adulterous woman, and now Jesus claims that he is the light of, light of the world. Like, like, they want to arrest him. They're trying to set him up. They get owned by him, and then now he's claiming to be the light of the world. And what's happening is this. At this very moment, they're at the end of the Feast of the Tabernacle, or the Feast of Booths. This was a one-week celebration where the people of Israel are celebrating the fact that they went from Egypt to the Promised Land. And the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacle, was uh, was a time when they would light these huge torches or lanterns in the four corners of the Court of the Women. And all day and all night, this light would burn, it would shine brightly, and it would signify the presence of God in the desert as a pillar of cloud during the day and as a pillar of uh, fire at night. And all week, they would celebrate and dance and party. And, and, And what Jesus is saying is this, just as that light shines to signify the presence of God in your midst, I am the light of the world, the Emmanuel that is now in your presence God with us. See, I mean, we are so used to artificial light, and we are so used to light, uh, all sorts of light, in the, you know, even at night. But back in those days, when it was dark, it was dark. So a week when there were these huge torches lit and huge lanterns lit, like the light was very, very bright. So and when he says, I am the light of the world, the Pharisees and the Jews, they understand what he was claiming. He was claiming to be the very light that was the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that traveled with the people of Israel throughout the desert. They understood his claim to the point that as he makes this claim, they are so upset, they want to stone him. They want to kill him. They want to arrest him. They start calling him uh, the, the son of the devil, right? You have a devil in you. They're like, who's your father? You're an illegitimate child. And then in verse 48, the Jews answered him, we are, not, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They are completely upset. They are saying Jesus is demon-possessed. And that he is not a true Jew, but that he is a Samaritan. And the reason, you know, it's like a derogatory term for the people of Jew, uh, Jew, uh, Jewish background to be called a Samaritan. You're being called a half-breed. You are basically being called someone who is not, does not have the legitimate claim to, to the promise of God through the father Abraham. And then they're like, who do you, who do you think you are, right? And Jesus is like, if you knew me, you would know the father. And they're like, Abraham is our father. He's like, Abraham's not your father. You're, 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 your father is the devil. They're like calling each other devils, right? 
And they're like, how do, you, how do you claim to have seen Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And right then and there, it says that they picked up stones to throw at him. Because the claim what Jesus is now saying is so blatant that there was absolutely no way around it. See, uh, when it says, before Abraham was, I am, what Jesus is basically saying is, I am God. Right? They're like, who do you think you are? I am. That's what he's basically saying. Okay? Because for, in the Old Testament, when Jesus, or when, when Moses asked the burning bush, who should I tell the people is sending me? What should I tell them your name is? He says, tell them I am sent you. The very name I am is God's name. We don't know exactly how it's pronounced in the Hebrew. Uh, and, and the Jews, they were so reverent of this name that they would never actually pronounce it. Uh, every time the word, uh, you know, the name of God, I am, is written, uh, they would replace it with the word Adonai, which means Lord. So they would never even utter the name of God because that's how revered and reverent they felt that the name of God was. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, the very claim that he is claiming is I am God. I am the light of the world that was spoken into, into the darkness and chaos and void of this world before creation even began. I am the light of the world that was present at the burning bush. I am the light of the world that went with you in your very presence throughout the desert in the 40 years. And I am the light of the world because I am the very source of eternal life that if whoever believes in me will not perish but will have eternal life. And here's the interesting thing about this passage. As they're talking back and forth, Jesus said to them, your father Abraham saw my day. He rejoiced and was glad. Like, what does that even mean? How did Abraham see your day? So again, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Abraham, if you guys remember, he was the one in which God made a covenant with. He said, through your seed, the entire nations will be blessed. All the world will be blessed through your seed. Then he finally has his son Isaac, and then he is called to sacrifice his son Isaac upon the altar. Um, Abraham, he obeys God. And, and here's the thing, like, I love all my children, right? Um, if God asked me to sacrifice any one of them, I'd be like, that's not you, God, right? Why would you ask me to sacrifice my son? And on top of that, if he made a promise, like, hey, through, through your son, most likely Jacob, through your son, um, we're going to bless the entire world, right? I'd be like, oh, awesome. Then he's going to grow up to be someone awesome, right? And he's like, when he's like 15 years old, he's like, hey, I need you to kill your son Jacob. Like, Whoa, you, just, you promised me that Jacob was going to be the guy who's going to bless the entire world. Now you want me to kill him? Definitely isn't God's voice. But Abraham, he hears God's voice. I don't know how it came about. He hears it. He hears the command to, to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and he does not stutter. He does not even, you know, stumble one bit, but he takes his son Isaac and he goes up to the mountain to sacrifice him. Why? Because he understood at that point in his life that God is a God who keeps his promises. So he understood even if he was to sacrifice Isaac, that he would do something miraculous. Maybe bring him back to life. Maybe do something. But there was no doubt in Abraham's mind. That's why the author of Hebrews says that, you know, Abraham is the, is the father of faith. Because he had complete faith in the workings and word of God that through Isaac, his seed, or through his seed, that the entire nations will be blessed. But if you know the story, as he's about to kill his son Isaac, the angel of the Lord comes, stops him, and instead there's a ram that is caught in a thicket, and he is replaced as a sacrifice. 
So what did Abraham see? When Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced, what he is referring to is at that very moment that what he understood about the promise of God is that there will be a time when God's son, his only begotten son, would be sacrificed so that all the nations will be blessed. That there will be a time when God's only son, his only begotten son, will be put to death so that all those that have faith in him would have eternal life. And as Jesus says, before Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced, and he's able to say, before Abraham, I am. He is claiming, as the light of the world, I am the very source of life that can only come from the God of the universe because I am him. And with these claims, with this claim, what we understand is that God is providing for us a truth that is so outrageous that there can be no middle ground. You either believe him for what he is claiming or you see him as a lunatic. These I am claims, there's nothing subtle about it. There's nothing subtle about it. So the, the only application that I have for you today is to use your slow, lazy part of the brain. Think logically. If the things that are written here are even, like, I mean, number one, fishermen are going to write in such a way where it has such dip, depth of meaning, right? They would have just been like, Jesus is a good person. He's God. Let's believe in it. No, no. Jesus is claiming outrageous things. If these outrageous things and the way that we've explained it today is actually true, then what does it actually mean about who Jesus is? And how can we go about our lives in a way where we either ignore it or we don't think much about it? The claims of Jesus in his I am statement should be the things that we reflect on every single day to really come to the conclusion, is he what he claims to be?